Hello and welcome to the May 2012 edition of the Lesbian Gay Law Notes podcast. I'm Brad Snyder, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York, and with me is Professor Art Leonard of New York Law School, the Chief Editor and Writer of Lesbian Gay Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal developments affecting the LGBT community here and abroad. Um, so let's get started talking about what Broadway shows you've been seeing recently, Art. I know you're a big theater buff. Maybe our listeners don't know. In addition to LGBT law, you're quite the, you know, go out and see shows, comment on them, blog about them. People ask your opinion on what they should see. So what's hot? What's hot? Well, I can tell you what's not. I went last week to see <laughs> 4,000 Steps at Lincoln Center Theater, and I thought it was a bit of a drag. Ooh, that's harsh. Well, how about some good words for a production you've seen? Well, what I'm going to be seeing tonight is Billy Budd at the Metropolitan Opera. And that is a show I can recommend to everybody. Perfect. And how many shows do you see a week? A week. A week, yeah. I mean, it a seems week. like, I mean, you're... You mean when I'm not writing law notes? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it seems when like I'm you're either writing law notes or you're at a well, show. Do you ever write, or writing law notes at the show? At, at the height of the season, I will probably be seeing two or three concerts in a show a week. Wow. But that's at the height of the season. There are troughs. <laughs> All right. Well, for, for for more recommendations on what to see and what not to see, you should check visit – Check out my blog, Leonard go. Link. There you go, Leonard Link, with all sorts of good stuff there. Okay, so back to Law Notes. That's what we're here to do. So your um, your lead story in the May issue is the case uh, uh, Macy versus Holder. Uh, and this is actually a, uh, a historic decision from the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. It's obviously a federal agency concerning the applicability of Title VII to complaints of discrimination based on gender identity, change of sex, and or transgender status. Um, before we get further into the details of what I've, I've already termed and you've termed in your writing a historic ruling from the commission, uh, can you chat briefly about the significance of Title VII and a bit about how that federal statute works in the EEOC more broadly? Okay. We, we need some history to understand why this is an important decision. Uh, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 is the central federal uh, statute banning discrimination in employment. It applies to all employers in the private sector in the United States with at least 15 employees. It applies to state governments, local governments. Uh, it is basic and central. It was enacted in 1964, uh, actually originally introduced by the Kennedy administration, but after the assassination of President Kennedy, Lyndon Johnson pledged that this was his top legislative priority to get the Civil Rights Act passed. As presented uh, by the relevant committees to the House of Representatives for a floor vote, it did not include sex. It was only race, color, religion, and national origin. Uh, but a strange coalition sort of spontaneously emerged on the floor of the House of conservative Southern Democrats who wanted to defeat the bill and moderate and liberal Democrats and some Republicans from around the country who were upset that sex wasn't included. A conservative representative from Virginia, Howard Smith, introduced a floor amendment to add sex to the list of forbidden grounds for discrimination and to the surprise of everybody, it passed. And the bill passed, and it went to the Senate. And there were great fears that the Civil Rights Act would stall in the Senate because if it was sent to committee, all of the relevant committees were chaired by very senior Southern Democrats who were opposed to the bill. And so the leadership in the Senate negotiated a deal to send the bill directly to the floor with limited allowance for amendments. And it passed. And the result is we do not have any committee reports from the House or the Senate 
stating what the addition of sex means. Which is helpful to us that in be, some ways. That would be in some ways helpful, but for a long time in our history of, uh, of seeking coverage for gay people and transgender not people, helpful. not helpful. Yeah. So sex was inserted into Title VII on the basis of a brief floor debate that did not explore any of the nuances of the issue. And not long after Title VII was passed and went into effect in 1965, then we have the Stonewall Rebellion in 1969, we have the modern gay rights movement emerging, we have people starting to attempt to make discrimination claims under Title VII uh, who are gay or who are transgender, and they face the barrier in the federal courts that the courts say there's no evidence that Congress was thinking about gay or transgender issues when they passed Title VII back in 1964. And the term sex, in fact, wasn't even defined in the statute. Some of the other terms were defined. There's a big definition section in Title VII, but there's no definition of sex in the original version of the statute. And early on, the Supreme Court took a very narrow view of what it meant in uh, cases involving discrimination against pregnant employees. The court held that was not sex discrimination. They said, because there's no legislative history, we have to give sex sort of the narrowest uh, textbook meaning we can, and we think it means uh, discrimination against men because they're men or against women because they're women. And so discrimination against pregnant women is not sex discrimination because there are plenty of non-pregnant women. It's discrimination against pregnant people. Hmm. So it's not sex discrimination. Well, Congress overruled that by adding uh, what's called the Pregnancy Discrimination Act as an amendment to Title VII, which says that sex discrimination includes discrimination on the basis of, of pregnancy and childbirth. Uh, but, you know, it's just a, a narrow expansion. Uh, and we were just losing these cases. There were uh, major cases went to courts of appeals. Uh, there were cases under state laws because many states passed anti-discrimination laws that also included sex. And uh, state courts were also taking a narrow approach. And there were quite a few transgender cases that were filed, uh, none of them successful in, in the period of the 80s and 90s. The Equal Employment Opportunity Commission was the agency established by Congress under Title VII to administer the statute. It takes complaints, it investigates, it attempts to conciliate. Uh, at some point in the history of the statute, the statute was amended to allow the EEOC to bring lawsuits. Uh, but normally, because of the big caseload and understaffing, they don't bring many lawsuits. Right. And, and let, what let they do is they issue letters permitting complainants to file suit in federal court. That's that's actually a fascinating history, yeah. and I know there's more of it that, yes. that will which could take the entire program. Yeah, it could. No, but let's get to the point. No, of this. no, no. Yes. That was actually. I mean, I'm sitting here it's very helpful, silent right? and riveted by the, especially the the history of how this wound up, well, yeah. how sex even wound up being there. And so let's, you know, the the history there that I think is most relevant is that these claims brought previously, like the one we're going to describe here, were seemed like they were were or going to be continued to be losers before the right. the EEOC. So here we have in this particular case some. I guess one could say unsettling facts, um, which unfortunately are not entirely unfamiliar in the context of employment cases concerning members of the transgender community. In fact, really typical. Yeah, I mean, we've I, talked about some, cases on so, here. Yeah, right. someone, someone applies for a position for which they're qualified. At the time they apply, they're presenting as one sex, but at some point in the process, they reveal that they are transitioning. And, and then the job suddenly disappears. the job disappears. The job and disappears. that's the, the specifics here is that uh, Mia Macy applied for a position for which there's no doubt that she was qualified uh, to work at a uh, crime laboratory of the uh, U.S. Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, which most will know as uh, ATF. 
Um, and at the time, she was still presenting as a man. She discussed her interest in the, with the uh, right. and the discussion was by telephone, by the way. Oh, you know, I didn't, yeah. I, I didn't know that. Um, right. And it, it seems as if she was told that she was going to be hired pending a background investigation. Right. So unless some giant red flag that would disqualify someone for the position is raised, genuine red flag, it's your job. That's how well, it usually as, works. As far as the director of the lab was concerned, genuine red flag went up. <laughs> when when he found out that uh, Mia Macy was transitioning, well, and this is this is where the facts get um, uh, you know just terribly um, again uh, unsettling, but again not unfamiliar in these kinds of cases. Macy does send a, an email explaining that she's in the process of transitioning from male to female, and soon after, um, she's told the position has been filled, as, as Professor Leonard mentioned. Although, although actually, what she was first told was that the position had disappeared because of funding cuts. And then she talked to the uh, Equal Employment Opportunity Officer for the agency who said, oh, no, they, they hired someone else who was further, further along, along in the process, in the process in of, the back, of background right. check. But uh, she saw that as pretextual, and it certainly sounds pretextual. It, it does. As, and, and I wanted to ask you about yes. that, is the pretext is. Um, can you talk about that sort of feature of these cases where – us sitting here and most people sitting from afar, and it seems like increasingly courts themselves are sort of like, this is pretty obvious that this was pretext for a form of discrimination. And, I mean, and where that comes in, uh, in the actual litigation under Title VII, uh, in a situation where you don't have direct evidence of discrimination, that is the employer saying, we do not hire transgender people or something like that, uh, you have to raise an inference of discrimination by pleading the facts of a prima facie case. Uh, the employer then uh, can rebut the prima facie case and the, the inference of discriminatory intent that it raises by articulating a non-discriminatory reason. And then it's up to the plaintiff in that case to prove pretext, that the reason is pretextual, it wasn't true, it was made up for this case, or uh, for some other reason it shouldn't be believed. Uh, so pretext is very important here. So she filed a complaint with the Equal Employment Opportunity Office uh, for the Bureau, uh, U.S. Bureau, of alcohol, tobacco, firearms, and explosives, which is a unit of the U.S. Department of Justice. And so the lead defendant in her uh, complaint is going to be the Attorney General, Eric Holder, and that's why he's the lead defendant. Uh, and the way the department was going to handle it, uh, earlier in his administration, President Obama issued a policy statement to all the executive branch departments saying that they should not engage in discrimination based on gender identity. This isn't an executive order. It isn't a regulation. It's a policy statement. Uh, so they were going to take her complaint, but they were not going to treat it as a Title VII complaint originally. Uh, then she raised a fuss about that because Title VII, of course, provides the right to go to court ultimately. Uh, Title VII has broader remedies. Uh, it, it may eventually engage the EEOC. Uh, and they were just going to handle this like an internal administrative justice department thing. Uh, and uh, so ultimately, it she appealed their refusal to handle it that way. And then, and then something really um, amazing and unprecedented, yes. and really astounding and confusing. Right. Something yes. really hard it to went, wrap your head around. It happens. went to the EEOC, and which is a five-member commission made up of Democrats and Republicans, both Republicans and Democrats. And what yes. happened here? Uh, the EEOC was unanimous in saying. Wait, so could we pause on that? So the unanimous. Democrats and the Republicans on the commission unanimous all agreed and saying, "Well, you know, if you look at the case law that's been developing uh, in the circuits, it's been unanimous too, mm -hmm. with both Democratic and Republican appointees uh, to the courts of appeals." Uh, 
they said our understanding of gender identity and sex has been evolving, and our understanding of Title VII has been evolving. And the important point here is two major Supreme Court decisions that have helped to propel a more expansive understanding of what sex in Title VII means. Uh, the first uh, is the famous Price Waterhouse case, Price Waterhouse versus Hopkins uh, from 1989, in which the Supreme Court held that evidence that an employer was using stereotypes, sexual stereotypes, in order to evaluate employees, in that case an employee who applied for promotion to partnership at Price Waterhouse, uh, use of sex stereotypes can be very strong evidence of sex discrimination, of discriminatory intent, requiring that women conform to a certain stereotype or that men conform to a certain stereotype. Uh, and after the Price Waterhouse case, in which the court, for the first time, throughout its opinion, uh, this is a plurality opinion actually by Justice Brennan, but this part of it was concurred in by two other members of the court in addition to the four who signed the Brennan opinion. He used the word gender. He said, by including sex in Title VII, Congress intended to outlaw all forms of gender-based discrimination that might be barriers to the participation of women in the workplace. So now the word gender has been interjected into the case law. Mm -hmm. It's not in the statute. The statute only used the word sex. But now the case law says that sex and gender are aspects of the same evil that Congress was going at, the discrimination, discriminatory attitudes based on sex and gender. Uh, and slowly but surely, this idea has permeated down to the lower federal courts. And at this point, we have decisions from four circuits and you were referring, you said two made, I assume you were talking about the Brumby case. Well, that's one of them, yeah. one that, which we've spoken about recently. Uh, and that wasn't a Title VII case. The idea is from four different circuits, we have decisions involving claims of sex discrimination by transgender plaintiffs under various federal statutes. Uh, the Ninth Circuit was a case under the Violence Against Women Act. The First Circuit was a case under the Federal Fair Credit Act. It was a transgender person who was denied equal treatment by a bank and applying for a loan. Uh, we have a case from the – two cases, actually, from the Sixth Circuit, both from Ohio, both involving transgender firefighters by interesting coincidence, uh, people who presented as male initially and while employed as firefighters by municipalities were transitioning and both ran into problems with the employer who didn't want them. And, uh, and the Sixth Circuit in both cases said this would violate Title VII. One of those cases, the municipality filed a cert petition with the U.S. Supreme Court, which was turned down. And then we have Glenn versus Brumby from the Eleventh Circuit involving the employee of the Georgia legislature. Uh, and that was an equal protection case. So the Eleventh Circuit said for purposes of the Fourteenth Amendment, discrimination against a transgender employee by a public employer is a form of sex discrimination requiring heightened scrutiny. So, so it's fair to say that the EEOC in evaluating this effort here took stock of the, the movement in the, in the federal courts and elsewhere to, to ultimately come to the conclusion that, in yeah. fact, uh, her Macy's entire claim could be brought uh, under Title VII. Yeah, they're definitely following the case law and the opinion that they issued uh, rather extraordinarily for the EEOC. It's a, uh, a lengthy, scholarly recitation of the case law, and it seems to be grounded very heavily in the idea that this is already established circuit precedent. In fact, 
In a footnote, they mentioned that they had already filed an amicus brief in a pending Title VII case in a federal district court making this argument in support of the plaintiff. In and, the and, and I take it despite the movement that's already happened in, in the federal courts, the EEOC doing this directly has enormous ramifications because other courts may look to it and just because of the nature of the claims well, that are brought before it? Well, for several reasons. Uh, one is this is a jurisdictional decision that applies throughout the agency. The EEOC has 53 regional offices around the country which are authorized to take complaints, investigate, conciliate, most charges of discrimination are resolved in this administrative process. So the fact that the EEOC now has jurisdiction is a step forward. Uh, in addition, this opens, th this opens the door to the courthouse uh, because most federal courts will defer to the EEOC's interpretation of the statute. Of course, district courts in the circuits that are cited in, in this opinion would surely uh, defer. Uh, there may be some courts that will disagree in other parts of the country. It may have to be litigated. But the fact that the agency has taken this position is important. And it's not only binding in their regional offices. The EEOC is also the appellate body, as we see in this case, for jurisdictional decisions by the Equal Employment Opportunity Offices in all the federal departments. And every department has an Equal Employment Opportunity Office. There's an entire separate structure for dealing with discrimination claims by federal employees. And this opinion now is binding within that structure, at least in terms of taking complaints and investigating them. It's, it's great to so. hear. And I, I want to close very briefly. I'm going to ask you to do it in, in 30 seconds or less. I mean, uh, you, you do close the note on this in this in this issue, sort of speculating about what this decision may mean for the passage or the prospects or the strategy behind the passage of the Federal Employment Non-Discrimination Act, or ENDA, as, as it's known, and, and which direction that heads. And I was wondering if you could give us your, your two cents on that. In 30 seconds, surely you jest. Uh, Ten uh, seconds. Actually, just to remind people, ENDA, without gender identity, passed the House in 2007. Mm -hmm. Then in 2008, both houses went Democratic. We got a Democratic president who was likely to sign it if it passed, but it was like number three or four on the Obama administration priority list, uh, and we didn't get to it before Congress changed in 2010. And so since then, the Republicans have held the House. An inclusive version of, of uh, ENDA that does include gender identity is pending in both houses of Congress. I think it's had hearings in the Senate. Uh, it's not going to go anywhere as long as the House is, is uh, held by the Republicans. The issue, I guess it's a strategic issue, if passing ENDA just with sexual orientation is an easier lift to get it through Congress, maybe we don't need to include gender identity if it's already covered by Title VII. On the other hand, a decision by the EEOC could be overturned by the well, courts. Well, and I think that's a good point, and that's why and, a short-term so strategy may be... A short-term strategy yeah. may be, may be short-sighted, and I think what more likely is going on between these court of appeals decisions, and there are also some very good district court decisions, uh, and the uh, opinion, very well-reasoned opinion by a bipartisan, unanimous EEOC, maybe this is an advance that is going to stick. And maybe the fact that the law is moving in this direction will persuade maybe not a, a Republican-controlled House, but maybe it makes the passage of ENDA with gender identity less difficult than it was before because it's evidence of uh, societal growth and understanding. And, and so it's, it's possible that one way to read this opinion is a sign that including gender identity isn't going to kill the bill. Uh, with that um – 
that hopeful note, uh, we'll end it there. It's a fascinating story. We'll take a short break. Return, we will be discussing another case concerning transgender rights, this time out of Minnesota in the context of an individual being dropped from insurance coverage for reasons having everything to do with her trans identity. Stay with us. We are back talking about the case of Radke v. Um, Local 638, um, and this continues our theme of discussing some of the challenges facing the transgender community. Uh, this one, uh, again, before a court reversal, is, is, is equally troubling. Here we have a, um, a transgender woman, Christine Allison Radke, who had been covered under a union-administered employee benefit plan as the wife of an eligible plan member. But the fund's board of trustees, and we'll talk about how they came to learn of it, learned that she had been born male, uh, in response to that, they cut off all benefits and subsequently demanded restitution for the coverage already paid out. So, uh, you know, not only are they terminating benefits, including health benefits, they're demanding restitution for the um, for the benefits that paid out uh, have been paid out previously. And this is all because they've determined that the marriage that would entitle her to health coverage as a spouse is not recognized under the law of Minnesota, according to them. Because despite mountains of evidence to the contrary, which we'll also talk about, she remains a he in their eyes, uh, specifically in the eyes of the fund's administrators. Um, which brings me to a question of a kind I've asked you before, Art, um, and which is, um, do the people making these decisions, are these, are these decisions that are made after consultation with counsel about the way to do these things, or is it just people flying blind? Because this is a decision, obviously we don't like, like the decision on its face, but it also doesn't seem to be persuasively reasoned out about how they come to this conclusion. They consulted counsel who advised them to drop her from the plan. <laughs> I mean, this this is amazing to me, but it's just one of many amazing things. Like every school board that's turned down a gay-straight alliance on advice of counsel, mm -hmm. any counsel who does some research would discover... Would know they're going to eventually they're gonna lose. lose. They're going right. to lose the resulting lawsuit, but they, they advised them anyway. I mean... What can we do? We have to educate the profession as well as everyone else, which I hope we're doing. Uh, so in, in this case, uh, Mrs. Radke had gone through the complete gender transition. She got a new driver's license. She got a new passport. She and that is, security that is she the mountain of evidence change. to the contrary about right. her gender that we're talking about. In Minnesota, but, she has all these documents. Well, she had done all those things. And then uh, evidently uh, got together with Mr. Radke and going to get married. And she figured, well, there's one last thing I better do if I'm going to get married. I better get a birth certificate change mm -hmm. because I had trouble, you know, getting a marriage license. So, and she was living in Minnesota, but she was born in Wisconsin. So she applied. It seems there's a procedure where when you go into Minnesota court, you can get an order to the Wisconsin Registrar of Records. Uh, and Wisconsin will honor that, and they'll issue a new birth certificate. Uh, so uh, they went ahead with the engagement. They set up the uh, the process for uh, planning the marriage. And luckily, everything lined up. Things came through in time. She got the new birth certificate, and they got married within days. Uh, so she had the new birth certificate in her female name and uh, the gender indication. So at, at that point, so many that people point, might conclude that the state of Minnesota – Recognizes viewed, the marriage. Views her as a woman. As a woman who is married to a man, and although uh, marriage equality is not available in Minnesota, certainly opposite-sex marriage is, and so they're legally married. Mm -hmm. And right. But and yet so, here the trouble begins. Well, here the trouble begins because Mr. Radke goes into his union fund office, and he 
reports that he's now married. He gives them a copy of the marriage certificate, and they enroll Mrs. Radke in the plan. And things are just fine for years. It's just fine. Uh, now, part of the gender transition, uh, she had had breast implants done. And one of the implants uh, ruptured, and she needed reparative surgery on it. And uh, one in, of the doctors noted that well, she's transgender. The noted, was in one of the yeah noted uh, the nature of the operation and said transgender patient or something mm-hmm. like that on the form that was submitted to the health fund. And the people of the health fund saw transgender, and this is where and it, 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 maybe it's not worth speculating, but I'm going to do it anyway. I mean. Is this partly an economic decision? I mean, is this a where we have an opportunity to drop someone with well, maybe some some higher financial cost needs on the health insurance side? So if we can take it, if we can take well, that opportunity, we that's, should. That's I mean, possible. One thing we should we should consider here is the practices of the health insurance industry in general. They generally policies, unless uh, some special arrangements have been made, policies don't cover gender reassignment procedures. Uh, that's that's not considered. Uh, well, I hate to use the word because it's a pejorative word in the context of insurance, but, but many insurers deem this a cosmetic procedure. And anyone who really understands what transgender is all about knows it's not a cosmetic procedure. And, 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 the, and on that, if that was a concern, it, w- it would be one thing to de- deny coverage for a specific type of procedure. Right. But here the plan just dropped her coverage entirely. Well, the, what happens is... Like many plans, they have an exclusion. They don't cover transgender procedures. Uh, So uh, the document comes into the plan office, and they're all in a turmoil what to do. How do we handle this? They consult counsel, and counsel advises them that because Mrs. Radke was born male, it's a same-sex marriage. The same-sex marriage is against the law in Minnesota. It's not recognized, and under the plan – the plan itself, the document says that uh, a spouse uh, who's uh, recognized under the law of Minnesota may be enrolled. But, but that's the leap that and, – and I think the, the, the writer for Law Notes, the attorney Stephen Woods, who wrote, I think, a very good note on this uh, and talked about the judge's reaction to this when the case was brought and, and termed the judge's opinion scathing towards yes. the activities of the fund. That, that sort of initial leap of, you know, we'll decide for ourselves how we measure what one's gender is. Uh, and, and we're going to decide that gender is a static concept and it's whatever the person's gender is assigned at birth despite all the other ways in which, as we've discussed, her, her gender identity has well, been recognized as female. There's, there's something I have to say in reluctant defense of the attorney who gave this advice. Okay, go for it. Because the attorney Better gave, you than me. Because the attorney who gave this advice, if he did his research, would find that so far American appellate courts who have ruled on this issue have generally ruled against the transgender individual. Uh, in what context? Though? Well, what these, these, these come up in wrongful death cases mm-hmm. or in inheritance cases where – A transgender woman marries a man, and then the man dies, uh, and the issue is whether the transgender woman is an intestate heir, uh, whether the transgender woman uh, as a surviving spouse can bring bring a wrongful death action. So we've had adverse decisions by appellate courts in Texas and Kansas, and uh, there was a uh, decision in Florida involving a child custody dispute and a breakup of a marriage between a transgender man and a woman. Mm -hmm. and in these contexts, American appellate courts have not been notably supportive or understanding of the concept of transgender. And uh, we are 
as a nation, we're far behind Europe on this. So the European Court of Human Rights has said that transgender people have a right to marry in their uh, in their uh, real gender, which is the gender with which they identify. Okay, no, I, I think that, that that's, so, a, that's so, a useful so, frame. So I think I think the lawyer undoubtedly, if if he was looking at this body of case law would say, in general, courts have not recognized transgender marriages. But the point is there was no Minnesota case law. And the point is Minnesota uh, had a court order uh, to Wisconsin to issue the new birth certificate. Uh, Minnesota had issued a new driver's license. Uh, Minnesota, uh, the, the U.S. government had issued a new passport. And, of course, a marriage license had been issued. Well, and that's really how the judge here frames it as that simple right. as uh, – Based on all of these documents and th- things that we've talked about, if she's considered female, which in, she is according to her own identity as well as all this indicia of it, then her marriage is legal. She's been issued the marriage certificate and therefore the plan's explicit terms, which affords coverage to a spouse, uh, applies. And the, the issue about same-sex uh, policy against same-sex marriage or non-recognition is neither here nor there in that, in that kind of context. In, in other words, the judge says the issue here is because the plan refers to Minnesota law. It's a question under Minnesota law. And this means that the judge can decide de novo what the state law means. And uh, in this case, uh, the judge is actually making a decision of first impression for Minnesota, which normally federal judges don't do. Uh, it, he, he could have referred it to the state court for an advisory opinion, which would have just delayed the case. But in any event, the judge decided that it was a reasonable interpretation of Minnesota law to hold that having issued the license and uh, acknowledged the birth certificate, et cetera, et cetera, uh, this would uh, uh, be binding on the plan for purposes of this case because the judge is reviewing the decision as of the time the decision by the fund was made. And, and speaking of this case, um, you um – you did sort of explain why the, the fund's attorneys maybe could have concluded this and uh, taken their position. Um, but they go and they do something else here just to shore up their the, – the threat yes. that, this, that this would face – they would face in the, in the future to their, to their right. legal analysis. What they do are – Anticipating this decision, uh, they amended the plan to say that uh, for purposes of deciding eligibility for spousal coverage, uh, a person's gender will be that assigned at birth. Uh, which is sort of a vengeful thing. To I mean, do. it does seem a little punitive, right? I mean, that yeah. to, to well, that, another thing to remember is that the union leadership is elected by the membership, and maybe the membership of this union isn't so open to. And, and we don't know whether I guess one could find out whether this has become a local political issue somehow uh, in this. I mean, because often the story behind the right. legal story is that there's actually some sort of political. Um, it becomes an issue. Right. Uh, well, the opinion that. is just out on April 2nd. It might be interesting to track the press reaction to it in Minnesota. All right. Well, on that, on that note, and I'll leave that to you since you'll be tracking everything for the, the June issue of, of Law Notes, as you always do. We'll take another break, and when we return, we'll be discussing a case out of Mississippi involving a former life couple's dispute over property and how the court handled that. Stay with us. We're back talking about the case of Cates v. Swain out of Mississippi, which involves the breakup of a lesbian couple, Mona Cates and Elizabeth Swain, who had no legal documents in place covering the treatment of their joint properties and assets. 
uh, in the event of a breakup, and the breakup occurred. Um, this is a fairly familiar scenario, but it's a little bit more complicated than usual because of the fact that one of the women, Elizabeth Swain, was still legally married to a man at the time of the events giving rise to the case, which actually that fact affected the way that the couple sort of planned their assets, specifically with respect to homeownership, that uh, one of the properties, or maybe all the properties, would not be in the name of of Swain at all, despite any contribution she might be making, because that would give her husband, her legally wed husband, rights to the property. So the relationship ends, as we've mentioned. There's a dispute how to how to divvy up various assets, and that culminates in a lawsuit. And here's where I turn to Art to tell us what the claims by Swain are all about. Okay, so uh, Elizabeth Swain was in the Navy, and Mona Cates was a commercial pilot. And so that meant she was flying around all over the place. Uh, and, and, but, she, I, I, but she was from Mississippi. I'm laughing even though so, you, that's literally but, correct. But okay. yes, literally correct. And, and Elizabeth Swain uh, was uh, working for the Navy, which meant she would be assigned to different places. So uh, she, when she was assigned to Florida, she bought a house. And uh, when she applied for the mortgage – or the loan to buy the house, uh, her husband had to be listed on the mortgage because she's a married woman and under Florida law, you know, the, uh, the husband may also be responsible. Uh, so uh, while she was in Florida, that was their home because uh, she, she was separated from her husband. Uh, Mona lived with her there, but the house was in Swain's name. But then uh, she was assigned to uh, Washington State and sold the Florida house uh, they decided that uh, the new house that they would get in Washington, Mona would buy and solely be in her name because they didn't want Swain's husband to have any claim on the property. So Swain signed over the proceeds from the sale of the Florida house to Mona, and it went towards to the, the new purchase house. of the new house. And they lived there together for a while. Uh, and then uh, Elizabeth reached the age where she could retire from the Navy on a pension. And they decided to move from the relatively colder climate of Washington State back to Mona's home state of Mississippi. And uh, they sold the house in Washington State and invested the proceeds in the house in Mississippi and moved down there. And the relationship deteriorated thereafter, and uh, Elizabeth Swain moved out. And they had set up a joint uh, eBay purchase e account. E-Trade. E E-Trade, e right. E -trade. A, a joint E-Trade account. And uh, Elizabeth tried to liquidate the account as the way she figured that's how she got her money back. And uh, Mona got word of it fast <laughs> enough to block it. I'm, not I'm only laughing because this is so – there's so much going on here with all these different yes. assets. And, and no one behaved perfectly in this situation, no. right? Everybody's trying you to know, get well, the when piece people, of what they think was rightfully theirs. Well, and you know, when people right. fall out – and the, the problem was they had never done a living together agreement. Mm -hmm. They had never made a contract of any sort. Uh, when Elizabeth testified, she said we trusted each other uh, because they were in love. Mm -hmm. You know, people in love don't always do the planning because they assume that it's going to continue. Well, and it's it's and not the it most frequently does for many people. It's right. not the most romantic thing right. to sit down and talk about what would happen in the event right. of a breakup. So uh, it ends up in court in the Tate County Mississippi Chancery Court before the Honorable Percy I. Lynchard Jr. <laughs> uh, and Judge Lynchard was faced with a very, very uh, imaginatively put-together complaint. Uh, 
by uh, John Thomas Lamar Jr. and David Mark Slocum Jr. You attorneys. love these names for some I reason. I love these names. Attorneys for, for Elizabeth Swain. And she she said, well, maybe there's a trust here. Maybe there's a quasi-contract. You know, all these different theories. Unjust enrichment. Unjust yeah, enrichment. All these all equitable of theories of how she can recover despite Various the fact she, that they're not married. She said, maybe treat us as, as joint venturers in the mm-hmm. purchase of real estate. I something. thought that was good. Yeah, I like that. I like joint that. venturers. Well, That's here, what they were. Here's, here's the problem. They were joint venturers. All right. Mississippi bans same-sex marriage. Mississippi provides no legal relationship for same-sex couples, no civil unions, no domestic partnerships. And on top of that, Mississippi, like a majority of the states, has banned common law marriage as well. And they have a tradition well-established in Mississippi law that cohabitants, whether same-sex or different sex, uh, the court is not going to use any kind of implied contract or equitable theory to treat them as if they were married because that would be verging on recognizing common law marriage. Uh, and so in this case, uh, Mona and Elizabeth were sort of roadkill <laughs> in that sense. It's, mm-hmm. it's not that it's aimed specifically at same-sex couples in that sense. Although we'll, right, All the right. married couples. It will uh, disproportionately, though, perhaps will, in a state that doesn't allow any other right. legal vehicle, it may disproportionately well, land on the Well, but the point so. is that Mississippi does allow another legal vehicle, and the women involved in this case didn't avail themselves of it, and that is – when you buy property as an unmarried couple, you make a contract setting forth the rights of each party and the relative interests. Now, what happened in the Tate County Chancery Court, uh, Judge Lynchard took a pragmatic approach. He said, I'm sitting as a, as a court of equity here. I'm trying to do justice. It's clear from the evidence that Elizabeth Swain has a financial investment here and that it's fair for her to be compensated because – Mona Cates remains in possession of the house. Mm-hmm. And so he awarded her a share of about 20% of the value of the house. And uh, Mona Cates appealed. And the opinion, although it's identified as having been heard before a three-judge panel, it was actually a 10-member on-bank panel that decided the case. And the vote was 8-2 to two in favor of Mona uh, against uh, Elizabeth because the court said that – Recognizing an unjust enrichment claim here, a sort of quasi-contract claim, they said that's like common law marriage again. They said our our case law is really set in Mississippi. Uh, There was a dissenting opinion by the chief judge and one other judge who said, look, as a matter of equity, Mm -hmm. we think the judge here did the right thing as between the parties, doing justice. But the majority saw a danger, uh, a sort of slippery slope here into things like California-style Marvin versus Marvin, the cases of – of implied contracts between cohabitants, they didn't want Mississippi law to go in that direction. They said it's up to the legislature wow. to decide what to do. And and so I think you've already said, and you've certainly written it, it is a cautionary tale that applies in many jurisdictions, even in jurisdictions that have marriage equality, because given the differing lay of the land, so to speak, across the United States with respect to recognition of relationships, that sitting down and doing some genuine um, financial planning, life planning, um, you know, living together agreements or documents yes. that spell out the expectations of the parties would be a good thing. At the very least, uh, when purchasing property jointly, it's a good idea to have it in both names. Uh, But uh, in this case, there was, of course, a reason why they didn't do that, and that's that uh, Mrs. Swain was still married. Right. And And she she eventually got divorced. divorced After after the fact. And and there are factors bearing on that because as an active uh, naval 
officer, she got extra housing allowance for being married, and, and her husband was carried on her military insurance. Interesting. I mean, and you would have thought the military element may have made uh, the, the sort of effort to right. try to reach a just uh, result yes. here um, on the other more hand, more powerful. And, and all of this happened before Don't Ask, Don't Tell was uh, repealed. So she had to keep her relationship with Mona Cates a secret. Well, and that may have well, – this is – yeah. So staying married may have helped. Lurking in this is another – you, can, you make all these connections hard yeah. all the time. That's well, what you do. You make connections. And they may or may and not you, be right. I'm speculating. You, well, you might it's, be it's a very something. interesting case. But I'm going to stop you because we have to stop. Yes, but I just want to tell our readers <laughs> – They're not our readers. Th- our listeners, listeners that this is one worth looking up. 2012 <laughs> Westlaw, no. 1292639. OK. Sites? We're going to give sites. We're going to give sites. OK. We are going to take a very short break, and we're going to conclude with our Of Note segment, or what Art likes to call Odds and Ends, and that's where we'll just mention a couple of notable or hilarious developments in the world of LGBT legal news. Stay with us. We're back to finish the podcast with our Of Note segment. So, Art, what what do you have of note? What what I have are two recent Uh, appellate decisions. That's of notes. Uh, Two recent appellate decisions. Uh, cutting back on overzealous application of sex offender registration laws. Uh, in, in one, a Massachusetts case, John Doe against Sex Offender Registry Board, uh, the appeals court of Massachusetts said, you've got to be kidding us, guys. You want a 12-and-a-half-year-old boy to register as a sex offender because he performed oral sex on a 7-year-old when he was 10? Come on, get off it. <laughs> And then the other case uh, is from the Kansas Supreme Court, and uh, this one. Or tread carefully. I will tread please. carefully. Because okay. even the last thing was a little. Okay, this <laughs> involves Joshua Coleman, who was ordered to register as a sex offender because he was engaging in sexual conduct with his former uh, female roommate's Rottweiler <laughs> in her garage, and, and was apprehended and was convicted of bestiality <laughs> under the Kansas sodomy law. And the, the trial judge said, well, bestiality, that's a sexually motivated offense. Therefore, he's got to register as a sex offender. It's and the Kansas little... Supreme Court said, hold on a minute, guys. <laughs> you know, uh, when, when the legislature passed the sex offender they registration law, they had a list. They probably didn't and have And they specifically omitted the subsection of the sodomy law that covered bestiality. But they had a catch-all provision that said any other sexually motivated crime. And the court said, well, you know, we're going to – there's an ambiguity created here and we're going to resolve it in favor of the guy who isn't going to have to register as a sex offender because he was manipulating a dog. So the, the Rottweiler lobby is not particularly powerful in the well, state of – Well, I, I was thinking my title for this in law notes might be Kansas is not safe for Toto anymore. <laughs> but I decided not to make a joke out of it. All right. You, you treaded away from actually describing what went on here, which I appreciate because yes. – People can look it up. Do you want to give a site for that? Because, you know, uh, oh, maybe if you just Google yes. 20, Rottweiler. <laughs> no, 2012 Westlaw, 1066-115. My, uh, my of note is uh, on a serious topic about a, um, a change of heart by uh, Dr. Robert Spitzer, who has, art, uh, has written about in Law Notes as a prominent psychiatrist whose 2001 published study claiming that some people can change their sexual orientation through reparative therapy has been cited by anti-gay litigants in numerous contexts over the past decades. And he has now, in a recent interview, uh, basically recanted and saying he owes an apology to the gay community and to gay in- individuals uh, who sought reparative uh, therapy based on the study. And the quote is, in retrospect, I have to admit, I think the critiques, uh, talking about of his work, are largely correct. Um, so I, I, as someone who's been an observer a bit to some of his writings over the years, what do you, how significant do you think that sort of backing away from the idea that you can 
change through therapy or sexual orientation uh, is here? Well, it's very significant because uh, the anti-gay forces continue to cite this article and they continue to argue that uh, sexual orientation is a choice that can be changed through therapy. Uh, the majority of psychiatrists disagree with this. Most studies disagree. And most significantly, uh, the kind of evidence that persuades someone like Spitzer is all these prominent ex-gays who get caught in men's room busts and things of that sort. So uh, I think it's a, an important advance uh, and that will be helpful to us in litigation and in political, political arguments. And, and I have a prediction, a cynical prediction, that people will continue to cite two studies that cite his study as opposed to citing directly to him. So the sites will continue to Oh, the, they'll to keep the citing to him as well. <laughs> okay. All right, but still an important bit of news. Uh, that's all the time we have today. Thanks for listening. To read the latest issue of Law Notes, please become a member of Legal or a Law Notes subscriber by visiting us at www.le-gal.org. To read back issues of the publication, visit the Justice Action Center of New York Law School. And this and future podcasts can also be found online, as always, in iTunes or at legal.podbean.com. Your comments and questions are also welcome at info at le-gal.org. Thanks again.